Radio Waves Radio Waves Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. Today is Thursday the 24th of October 2016. My name is Brendan O'Brien, and this week's episode is Black Hole, Black Hole Echo, Echo, using echoes from black holes to measure distances from distant galaxies, with doctoral candidate Natalia Sommer from the Australian National University in Canberra. Each session, we'll have co-presenters, we'll have a special guest in both the professional and amateur fields of radio and optical astronomy. We'll have a news roundup, a history and theory session from Nadezhda, Skyping in from Tver in Russia. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Nat. Hello, Brennan. Great to have you here. It gives me great pleasure to speak today with Natalia Sommer, who is a PhD candidate. First of all, Nat, you grew up in Norway. Tell us about your school days and when you first developed an interest and passion for science and space or astrophysics. So I had a father who used to drag me out when I was a kid and the rest of my family was sound asleep. But for some reason, my father decided that he would pull me out of my bed in the middle of the night, (laughs) drag me outside and point to those tiny white freckles on the night sky. And I loved it. Awesome. And that's how it all started. And and that's why, I'm, well, that's a part of the reason why I'm here today. Yes. And you studied science subjects at school. I did. Yes. I guess I did well with science when I was growing up, but I did go through my, you know, rebellion phase where I just hated maths and science, just like any other kid. Wow. I did do well, and so I guess I just did it even though I didn't like it because I figured, oh, I guess I'm good at it. I guess I should give it a go. And by the time, or rather, when I started taking physics as an individual course, I realized that, wow, this is crazy. I love this. There are so many things in our world that when you think about it, they are so strange. They barely make sense. And yes, they work. We can see they work like quantum mechanics. It's nuts. See, that works. And I thought to myself, this, I need to get into this. I need to figure this thing out. Okay, so that's fantastic, Nat. And then since your school days, you've been to several universities. You started off at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. That's right. In Norway, we don't have as many universities as we do in Australia. And so I went to the university, which I thought would be the very best one for me. It was about 500 kilometres from where I grew up, which was a whole... I could have gone to universities that would have been closer. But by going to the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, I knew that I would get an absolutely amazing education. So that's what I chose. And then I went from there to the University of Queensland in Australia. I then went back to Norway and studied at the University of Oslo. And then I went back to the University of Queensland. (laughs) And now I'm at the Australian National University. Okay, tell us a little bit about your move to Australia. 
So I've essentially just always wanted to go to Australia. And at some point, I just realized that, you know what? No one in Australia are really far apart. So I can't really do, you know, a weekend trip there. And I realized that just doing an exchange program during my uni years would be the easiest thing. And I did end up at the University of Queensland, which was amazing because I met some really, really good researchers over there. And going there during my undergrad years has led me to the postgraduate research that I'm doing now. Very good. And so it looks like you've had some great opportunities in Australia to see a bit of the outback. Tell us a little bit about your outreach work that you did at Uluru. So I am a part of a collaboration named Castro, and it is the ARC Centre of Excellence for All Sky Astrophysics. Yep. And they are sending out volunteers to Uluru two weeks at a time throughout most of the year. And we go there and we talk to the public. We have this booth that's standing outside in the middle of the town that's there. And we just chat to people, like play astronomy-related games with them, have a telescope pointed towards either the sun or Venus and just show them that, hey, you can actually do some things during the day as well. And then during the night, astro tours, where we take them outside and we show them some um, some constellations and we tell them about what space is like, and people love it. It's always like the tours are always fully booked out days before they are actually happening because yep. it's such an amazing opportunity for people um, to see it out there because the starry sky way out in the outback is just amazing. Not much light pollution there at all. No, and it's also so flat. So, like, you don't have just things in the way. Yep. Fantastic, Nat. So let's get on to the nitty-gritty. You're currently a PhD candidate at the Australian National University in Canberra, and measuring distance is a very important problem in astronomical research, we discovered from talking with Dr. Brad Tucker a couple of weeks ago. What are you learning by studying active galactic nuclei with javelin data, and what are reverberations and time lags? And I believe that you're doing a very novel approach to tackling the problem of distance. Can you just explain and talk us through what you're doing and how you're doing it? Sure. So first of all, let's just make things slightly easier. So active galactic nuclei are just the centers of a special type of galaxies. And so they just have a supermassive black hole that's actually sucking in a lot of stuff. Yep. Now, we think that pretty much all galaxies have a supermassive black hole at the centre, but many of them are essentially just hibernating and not doing anything in particular. Okay. Now, reverberation is just a fancy word for echo. Okay. So what I do is called reverberation mapping, and that just means echo mapping. Yep. And so here's the thing. An active galactic nucleus is, as I said, the centre of a galaxy. So what you have is you have a supermassive black hole and, as we know, black holes tend to be black. <laughs> yep. But straight outside that black hole, we have something called an accretion disk. Yes. So this accretion disk is, well, a disk of very, very bright matter. 
This is stuff that's falling into the black hole, but it tends to not just get sucked straight in. It circles the black hole a lot before actually falling in. And as it circles that black hole, it just all the particles that crash into each other. And you may have noticed that if someone punches you in the arm, then if you think about it, your arm is going to feel slightly warm. Yes. And that's because when things crash into each other, they heat up. Yep. But you may also have noticed that if you have a stove, and not a gas stove, but one of the old ones, and you turn up the heat all the way, yes, you may have seen that the stove changed colour from, you know, greyish black to red. Yep. That's because things that are really hot tend to get bright. So this is what happens around the black hole. The black hole itself is dark, but the accretion disk has a lot of matter that is just crashing into each other and ends up being hot and bright. Yes. When we look at the centre of that galaxy, we actually see a lot, a lot of light coming from there. Now, a bit further out, we do have some other gas that is around the black hole. And what happens is that the light that is coming from the very centre around that black hole, it can travel towards us, but it can also travel towards that gas that's further out. Yes. And that gas kind of acts like a mirror. And so we can actually see the same light only coming from a slightly further out distance yep what happens then is that that light coming from further out is kind of an echo of that light that is starting out in the center okay and so we try to measure that echo and we try to figure out how long is it between the original light and the echo light And that's the time lag that I'm trying to measure. Now, that time lag, we can interpret that as just the distance between those gas clouds and the supermassive black hole in the centre. And that's just because we know that light travels at a constant speed. Yes. It's light. And so if we measure our time, then we automatically know what the distance is. Now, that distance we have found is very strongly correlated, is very strongly dependent on the luminosity, the intrinsic brightness of the accretion disk around the black hole. But as you were talking with Brad about, if you know the intrinsic brightness, the luminosity, then you compare that with light that you perceive and you can figure out what the distance is between yourself and that thing you're observing. So that means that by just figuring out, by listening to those echoes and figuring out how long it is before we hear the echo, we can actually figure out how far that thing we're looking at is. So you've developed a new sort of standard candle. That's right. So this is something that was shown uh, just a few years before I started my research. It's a very, very small field, and I thought that sounded incredibly cool. So that's what I started researching. Fabulous. Now, tell us about Javelin. What is Javelin? Javelin is just a very fancy software developed by some people in Ohio in the US. And that's helping me with actually figuring out how long that echo is. Because when we're doing measurements in astrophysics, we would like to, you know, point our telescopes 
towards something all the time. But unfortunately, we sometimes have bad weather or we just weren't allowed to make measurements or someone else wants to use the same telescope. So we're trying to make measurements as often as we can, but it's not perfect. And that makes it a bit more difficult to figure out what that echo exactly is. And so we need a special software to figure out what that echo is. Okay, thank you. That's a very clear explanation of Javelin. Now, the original data you get to work with from the active galactic nuclei, the supermassive black holes, where do you get that data from, from optical telescopes or radio telescopes? We get that from optical telescopes, and we need to use two different ones, actually. So we're a part of what is called the Dark Energy Survey, or DES, and that's located primarily in the US and that is what photometric survey and so that means that it's essentially just a really 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 large digital camera that's taking pictures of the sky and that's all good but for my particular case I also need to figure out what's happening at different wavelengths how much light am I getting on different wavelengths and you can't do that with just a digital camera so we need what's called spectroscopic measurement and we get that from OSDES, which is the Australian Dark Energy Survey. Yes. So I'm actually participating in taking these measurements and we take them here in Australia um, and we have a telescope at the Siding Spring Observatory in Canberra Brain. I put together the spectroscopic measurements that we're taking from Australia and the photometric measurements taken in America and put them together to actually figure out these echoes. Awesome. Well, we'll look forward to seeing your papers as they come out, Nat. Ah, yes. (laughs) Very good. Now, for young people that might be listening to you speak at the moment, can you just give us an idea of what does a typical week look like for a PhD candidate? I think it's kind of difficult to say what a typical week looks like because it always changes a bit. But I do have, I am a part of the Oz collaboration um, for which I sometimes need to do measurements. And so, as I said, sometimes we do get to do measurements. Other times we need to give the telescopes to someone else. Yes. So a lot of the time I'm not doing measurements for them, but then every now and then I do have a very intensive week where I have to stay up all night and do that instead of any other type of research. The weeks when I don't do that, I'm also a part of other collaborations and so I need to look through the data that the other collaborations are taking and try to figure out what we're looking at there. But I also need to do my own research, which has a lot a lot of computer programming so we do sit in front of the computer screen a lot and we just have google open where we can figure out how to do things and then we apply them and then we check it and one very important thing that we do is simulations and so because we may develop i'm developing a software which i'm going to use on actual data but i don't want to just apply it to the measurements and just assume that everything is going to be all right so what i do is that i also create fake measurements which just look like measurements that we could get from an actual telescope but the difference is that i know what the underlying numbers are for these fake measurements and i can put these fake measurements through the software that i'm creating and through 
javelin which I am using to measure echoes and then I see okay so when I've done that what kind of answers am I getting and then I compare the answers that the software is saying that I should get and I compare them to the numbers that I know were true because I use them to create the fake data yep and then if I see that oh they are actually very different then I know that okay well something in my software is wrong I have to figure out what's wrong with my software or if I do this many many times and each time I end up getting the right I know that okay you know what the computer code that I wrote is actually reliable I can actually use this when I use this on physical measurements I will be able to say that yes this is right I can trust these numbers that I'm getting out and this is actual science Fantastic. What language do you write your code in? Currently, I'm using Python, yep. but I've also used C++ and Fortran, even MATLAB. I think it just depends on what field you're in, I suppose. Yep. But I have seen that it, we have seen a shift towards Python as the primary programming language within astrophysics over the past years. Excellent. Thank you, Nat. Now, the microphone is all yours, Nat. Uh, it's now your opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave on science, on funding, on the victories we have, on the impediments against success. So take it away, Nat. So I have to say something that I am constantly very frustrated about is how the average person seems to think that it's okay to not like science. It's okay to not like maths. And actually, it's more just, it's not even that it's okay. It's that it's cool not to like science or maths and even be bad at it. And I just see, you know, all this post and memes and, you know, people are essentially just making fun of how they consider maths or science to be useless and that makes me really really frustrated yes because i believe that maths and science is just as important as anything else that we learn in school and i mean no one would walk around bragging about how they don't know english no one would be like oh i can't even spell my name <laughs> i'm so cool if you did that people would think you're insane if you were bragging about how you don't know anything about the second world war people think there's something very seriously wrong with you yes. and that you should educate yourself and so i feel that the acceptance of people just thinking that you know what no i don't need maths i don't need to know division or finding percentages of things or knowing algebra that just really frustrated because actually you do and you will see that these things do come up in a lot of things and even if you personally do not know or do not need to do algebra every single day a lot of people do and the same way i don't need to know about how second world war started a lot of the time for you know my adult life but i do know these things anyway and i think that it's good for me to know it because it gives me a wide perspective on life and so i think that people should consider that off math and science and that's why you do outreach and that's why we do this podcast 
people are intrinsically interested in science, but they may have had some unfortunate experiences with it in the past. And we just have to be there to tell them about all the awesome things that that are there and that we actually use because things like the constant speed of light is something that we need to use, you know, even for GPS, which all of us uses essentially every single day. And to survive out driving on the roads. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Natalia Sommer. Thank you, Nat. It's been great speaking with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me talk to you. That was Natalia Sommer, PhD candidate with a novel way of measuring distances across our universe. Hello, Nadezhda. Hello, Brendan. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. What have you got for us this week? Well, first of all, I would like you to listen to this, and then you tell me what we're doing this week. Ah, I think I've got it. We're doing the Doppler shift, and that was some sort of vehicle passing by. Correct, Brendan. It was a F1 V12 on the racetrack. Very good, Natasha. Well, the microphone is all yours. The Doppler effect is observed whenever the source of waves, like sound waves or radio waves or gamma rays or any sort of waves, is moving with respect to an observer. The Doppler effect is produced by a moving source of waves in which there is an apparent upward shift in frequency for observers towards whom the source is approaching and an apparent downward shift in frequency for observers from whom the source is receding. It is important to note that the effect does not result because of an actual change in frequency of a source. We are most familiar with the Doppler effect because of our everyday experiences out on the road with sound waves. You may have heard a police car coming up behind you and then passing you and zooming off to catch someone who was speeding in front of you. If that was the case, when the police car is coming behind you, its siren sounds like a high pitch. And after it has passed you and is racing to catch the bad person, the siren has a lower pitch because it is spread out behind the moving object, in this case, the police car. Now why are we interested in the Doppler effect in astrophysics? Well, the Doppler effect is of incredible interest to astrophysicists because we can use that information about the shift in frequency of electromagnetic waves produced by moving stars in our galaxy and beyond in order to derive information about the movements of those stars and galaxies. Our understanding of the expanding universe is based upon many lines of evidence as we found 
found out two weeks ago from Dr. Tucker, but one of the lines of evidence is based on observations of those electromagnetic waves emitted by stars in distant galaxy. Also, we can find out specific information about stars in our own galaxy by applying the rules of the Doppler effect. Now, galaxies are clusters of stars that typically rotate about some center of mass point, usually a black hole. Electromagnetic radiation emitted by such stars in a distant galaxy would appear to be shifted downwards in frequency, a redshift, if the star is rotating in its cluster in a direction that is away from us on Earth. Or, on the other hand, there is an upward shift in frequency, what we call a blue shift, of such observed radiation if the star is rotating in a direction that is towards the Earth. Now, we know from our observations that most galaxies are redshifted. Most galaxies are moving away from us. And if that is the case, we can derive an understanding about the expanding universe. Now, there are some local galaxies which are gravitationally bound to our galaxy and are moving towards us, and so the stars in those galaxies are blue-shifted. A classic example of a blue-shifted galaxy is the Andromeda galaxy. In a week or two, no, I am being funny, Brendan, in several billion years, the Andromeda galaxy is going to merge with the Milky Way galaxy, and we know this because of its blue shift. Now, we also know that there are many stars, in fact, most stars belong to binary systems, where we have two stars rotating about a central center of mass. So sometimes, the alignment of these stars is such that one star is moving towards us and the other star is moving away from us. And we can tell that because if we look at a binary system and the light from one star is blue shifted and the light from the other star is red shifted, we can tell a lot about their motion, how far apart they are, how quickly they are rotating around that central center of mass. So Doppler shift, red shift, blue shift can give us an amazing amount of information about individual stars and about distant stars in distant galaxies, and indeed about the motions of whole galaxies. And the bigger the redshift, the quicker the galaxy is moving away from us. So, in astrophysics, redshift or Z tells us a lot about the conditions inside our universe. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you, Nadezhda.
Now, while you've been explaining that, there's a tiny earl that our listeners can go to and see a very nice visual representation of Doppler shift. Just go to tinyearl.com forward slash astrophys Doppler. All one word, all lowercase. Thank you very much, Nadezhda. Desvidaniya. Paka, Brennan. And now, what's up in the night sky? As we approach the solstice in a month's time, we have beautiful balmy evenings in the southern hemisphere and longer nights in the northern hemisphere, so no excuse for not getting out there. Whether you're on top of the world wearing a parka in Canada, the USA, UK or Europe, or on the Indian subcontinent, or maybe you're down in South America, Africa, New Zealand, or wearing mosquito repellent in the land down under, enjoying a Vegemite sandwich. And for the next week, it's just perfect as we approach the new moon on the 29th of November. We'll be having fabulous dark skies for those who step out after the evening meal, as well as for those insomniacs who wake up early or otherwise enjoy getting out to see dark morning skies. So what's up? Venus is still dominating and being the brightest object in the western sky after sunset, and it lies on the ecliptic. Now, a quick word about the ecliptic. The ecliptic is an imaginary line in the sky that traces the apparent path of the sun as it passes from east to west each day. So if you take notice of the sun's apparent path, you can have a mental map of the ecliptic. And the cool thing about this is that you can have this in your mind and you'll have a much easier time finding the planets because they also roughly follow the path of the ecliptic. Here's an example of how it can be useful to you. Look west after sunset tonight. That's the 24th of November. Mercury and Saturn will be right down on the horizon and passing underneath the horizon very quickly, so they'll be very difficult to see. But Venus will be shining brightly in the western sky, and if you follow the ecliptic, that imaginary line traced by the path of the sun, arcing upwards, and if you look to a point which is double the distance Venus is above the horizon, you'll see an orange-red object. That's Mars, pretty much on the ecliptic. Speaking of Mars, and if you haven't seen the movie The Martian with Matt Damon, have a look. It's pretty good. The science isn't too bad. Well, uh, furious dust storms that cause all of Mark Watney's problems just don't happen like that because Mars has only got the equivalent of 1% of Earth's atmosphere. So in reality, Mars dust storms exist, but they're pretty gentle and wistful events. Now, I'm not being picky here, but Mark Watney would have been fried by radiation also after 500 days of wandering around in his spacesuit. That being said, it's a beautifully constructive ripping yarn, an excellent movie and awesome as an audiobook, which you can find on the web for about $15. Now, back to the ecliptic. And let's look at the morning skies now. Tomorrow morning, November 25th, in the southern hemisphere, if you're out looking east around 5am, you'll see the moon and Jupiter close together, not far above the horizon on the ecliptic. The moon is only at 17% of full, so you should be able to see Jupiter to the right of the moon. And if you turn your gaze 70 degrees to the right, you'll see the southern cross and the two pointers, Rigel Kent, Alpha Centauri, and Hadar, Beta Centauri. You should be able to note Hadar's bluish tinge under dark skies. Hadar is a binary pair of very hot blue giant stars. 
that will one day go supernova. And Hadar actually is part of a triple star system. But that's another story. Now, if you turn back towards the moon and continue left to follow the ecliptic over to the west, you'll see the magnificence of Orion, Orion the Hunter. And Orion's belt has a bright star to the right. That's Betelgeuse, the red supergiant, about 640 light years away. So it could have gone supernova in Galileo and Shakespeare's day, and we still wouldn't know about it. It's going supernova because of its high mass, and it's evolving quickly, and it's only 10 million years old, and is expected to go supernova in the next million years or so. The other bright star over on the opposite side of Orion's belt is Riggle, not Riggle Kent, which is one of the pointers I mentioned earlier, but plain old Riggle. Well, perhaps not plain old Riggle. For Riggle is a triple star system, and Riggle A, the brightest, is a blue supergiant, which is a quarter of a million times more luminous and 80 times bigger than our sun. So that's why it appears to be so bright, even though it's 863 light years away. It's about 8 million years old and destined to become a red supergiant before it explodes as a type 2 supernova, flinging gold, platinum and other heavy elements into its neighbourhood. Now, what's up in the sky for the Northern Hemisphere listeners? Well, looking southwest just after sunset, Venus also is very obvious. And Red Mars follows it down the ecliptic to the western horizon about two hours later. Over to the left of Mars is Formalhaut, and it's one of the brightest stars in the sky. It's about 25 light years away. And way back in 2008, it was the first stellar system with an extrasolar planet candidate, which was imaged at visible wavelengths. Formalhaut is a young star. It's only about 200 million years old, but it has a potential lifespan of over a billion years. Now, almost the same distance away on the other side of Mars is Altair, which is also a very bright at magnitude 0.77 and one of the points of a summer triangle. And the Northern Hemisphere viewers, one of the closest stars you can see at 16.7 light years away. Altair is an interesting star because it rotates at its equator so quickly at about 286 kilometers a second, causing it to be not spherical like most stars, but significantly flattened at the poles. Our star takes about 25 days to do a complete rotation. Altair does it in nine hours. Now to finish off with, an astrophotography challenge. Now the astrophotography challenge is to set up a camera on a tripod, then to play around with your ISO settings, your time settings, and your aperture settings. The aim is to get a set of star trail photographs, which also catches the temperature of the stars. And by doing this, you're doing some basic astrophysics. And just a tip, if you underexpose your image, you will not capture the different colours of each star, and all stars will appear to be white. If you overexpose your image, your photo will be too noisy. So the challenge is to get the exposure just right. And when you do get it just right, you will effectively be taking the temperature of the stars, and you'll have a record showing the red and orange stars, which are the cooler ones, and the bluish stars, which will be the very hot ones and you'll be doing a very simple bit of astrophysics with your DSLR. When you manage to do this, email your photo to me at oscience2006 at gmail.com, and I'll put it up on the Astrophys Public Group Facebook page. It's free to join.
Here is the Astrophys News for Thursday, 24th of November 2016. Two significant papers on fast radio bursts, SRBs, have been released in the last week. This report is a combination of a press release from Castro and the Ravi et al. paper published yesterday in the journal Science. Flash of invisible light helps map the cosmic web. A brief but brilliant burst of radiation that travelled at least a billion light years through space to reach the Australian Radio Telescope last year has given scientists new insight into the fabric of the universe. Ikra Curtin University's Dr Ryan Shannon, who co-led research into the sighting, along with CIT's Dr Vikram Ravi, said the flash, known as a fast radio burst, a FRB, was one of the brightest seen since FRBs were first detected in 2001. The flash was captured by CSIRO Parks Radio Telescope in New South Wales. Dr Shannon from the Curtin Node of ICRA, the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, and CSIRO said all FRBs contain crucial information, but this particular FRB, the 18th detected so far, was unique in the amount of information it contained about the cosmic web, the swirling gases and magnetic fields between galaxies. FRBs are extremely short but intense pulses of radio waves, each only lasting about a millisecond. Some are discovered by accident, and no two bursts look the same, Dr Shannon said. This particular FRB is the first detected to date to contain detailed information about the cosmic web, regarded as the fabric of the universe. But it also is unique because its travel path can be reconstructed to a precise line of sight and back to an area of space about a billion light years away that contains only a small number of possible home galaxies. Dr. Shannon explained that the vast spaces between objects in the universe contain nearly invisible gas and a plasma of ionized particles that used to be almost impossible to map until the pulse was detected. This FRB, like others detected, is thought to originate from outside of Earth's own Milky Way galaxy, which means their signal has travelled over many hundreds of millions of light years through a medium that, while invisible to our eyes, can be turbulent and affected by magnetic fields, Dr Shannon said. It is amazing how these very few milliseconds of data can tell how weak the magnetic field is along the travelled path and how the medium is as turbulent as This particular flash reached CSIRO's Park Radio Telescope mid last year and was subsequently analysed by a mostly Australian team. A paper describing the FRB and the team's finding was published in Science. The Park's telescope has been a prolific discoverer of FRBs, having detected the vast majority of the known population, including the very first, the Lorimer burst, in 2001. FRBs remain one of the most mysterious processes in the universe, and likely one of the most energetic ones. To catch more FRBs, astronomers use new technology, such as Park's multi-beam receiver, the Murchison Wide Field Array, the MWA, in Western Australia, and the upgraded Molongo Observatory Synthesis Telescope near Canberra. Also in the news, 56-year-old American astronaut Peggy Whitson now holds the title of the oldest woman to fly in space after she and a multinational crew from France, Russia and the USA blasted off for the International Space Station last Thursday on board a Russian Soyuz rocket carrying NASA astronaut 
Mzwitsen, Russian cosmonaut Oleg Novitsky, and French astronaut Thomas Pequet for Expedition 50, which lifted off from the Baikonur Cosmodrome spaceport in Kazakhstan. Ms. Whitson is a biochemist and NASA's former chief astronaut and is making her third trip to the ISS station, a $100 million research lab that flies about 420 kilometres above Earth. It's the size of a soccer field and very easy to spot when it's over your patch. If you're interested in seeing when the ISS passes over your home at night, go to heavens-above.com. You can register for free, put in your hometown or suburb, and Heavens Above will tell you when ISS is going to be visible and overhead. Back to Expedition 50. Ms. Whitson has completed two six-month tours aboard the space station in 2002 as part of Expedition 5, and she was also part of a team of Expedition 16 in 2008. Mr. Novitsky, 45, is making his second space flight, and Mr. Pasque, 38, is a rookie astronaut representing the European Space Agency. By the time Ms. Whitson returns to Earth in six months' time, she will have accumulated more time in orbit than any other US astronaut, surpassing the 534-day record set last September by astronaut Jeff Williams. She will be the most spaced-out person you know, so remember her name, Peggy Whitson. She said, The most important thing about the station is the friendship and the work we accomplish there. The final members of the Expedition 50 crew will be greeted by NASA astronaut Shane Kimbra and Russian flight engineer Sergei Rizikov and Andrei Borisenko, who arrived earlier on October 21. They will spend the next four months conducting more than 250 science research experiments in fields such as biology, earth science, human research, physical science and technology development. This Expedition 50 crew will be one of the last six-member teams to live on the station for a while. Beginning in March next year, Russia plans to cut the number of cosmonauts serving on the station from two to three, following delays in launching their new science lab. Their multi-purpose laboratory module is now expected to be launched in 2018, and that's something to look forward to. That was the news, and that's Astrophys for this week. See you next week. Radio Wave!